to London Low Pate at Large. I'm London Low Pate. Astronomers have successfully observed a great deal of the history of the universe, from recording the afterglow of the Big Bang to imaging thousands of galaxies and even to visualizing an actual black hole. But when it comes to understanding how the universe began and developed, we still don't know what happened during its first one billion years. In her new book, First Light, Switching on Stars at the Dawn of Time, astrophysicist Emma Chapman, a Royal Society Research Fellow and Fellow at the Royal Astronomical Society based at Imperial College London, tells the story of the very first stars and what we have come to know about those first one billion years of the universe. Uh, Her book is published by Bloomsbury Sigma, and it brings Emma Chapman to our show now. Welcome. Hi there. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, this is fascinating stuff. Uh, You begin your book by noting that for centuries people have wondered why the sky is dark. How does that relate to the story you tell about the Big Bang, the cosmic dawn, and and what followed? Well, um, when you look up at the sky, um, it's is dark and you can see these beautiful pinpoints of light which are of course the stars and these of course centuries thousands of years millennia of of wonder but when we think about it shouldn't the sky be completely bright and this was wondered about a lot in the 19th century and it was because they were thinking well if the universe is infinite in time if the universe has existed forever which is actually what people thought then then there should be stars born and dying but constantly born and dying and so when you look around you there should be stars everywhere because if the universe is infinitely old you've got infinite amounts of time to get these stars it's infinitely large should be bright everywhere so clearly something's wrong in those assumptions and there's this this is called Olbasser's paradox and what they figured out was that actually it isn't infinitely old Mm. Um, and so this this means that there must be a first star to start it all off Um, and that's the area of research I'm in today. Well, obviously, the Big Bang occurred at a specific time, but shouldn't we assume that history, that time is infinite? Do we have any theories regarding what preceded the Big Bang? Oh, I love this question. (laughs) So I do a lot of outreach. Um, And what I find is that the most interesting questions come from under 10-year-olds and (laughs) over 50-year-olds. Oh, well, I definitely am over 50. (laughs) And these are the groups of people that have lost their fear of asking the questions that have popped into their head. Now, what became became before the Big Bang? I have no idea. Nobody has any idea. And this is the great thing about science is this is a question that nobody can visualize. Nobody can understand. Nobody's written an equation for it. People have got ideas, but they're kind of picked out of the air. So some people think that maybe um, the universe will expand and then collapse. And actually, it's kind of been bouncing about this infinitely in time. So you have a you have a universe that expands and collapses, expands and collapses, expands and collapses. Have we got a way of testing this right now? No, because we simply cannot look back that far in time. There's all sorts of terms here that uh, I was speaking to a friend and uh, we realized that uh, lay people would not know what the epic of re ionization 
means. Or, in fact, we're not exactly sure what black holes are or what quasars are or what quasar, the term quasar is even an abbreviation of. Um, that's a really good question. Do you know, do you want, blah, blah, blah. Quasar has, has entered the lexicon of astronomy so much that I can't even remember what it actually <laughs> stands for. That's really funny. Um, but the all of these uh, terms have entered into the public sphere in terms of black hole and you have the Big Bang Theory, which is, of course, a, a hugely successful show. Um, but you're right. We don't really think, well, hang on, what does it actually really mean? And in terms of the Big Bang, um, well, I mean, we can say that it's um, the very start of the universe when everything in the universe was packed into an infinitely dense mm. point. Does that really help us understand anything? Not really. And, and what was around we, it? <laughs> exactly what was around it, what was before it. Our brains just aren't really capable of understanding a lot of these concepts and a lot of this mathematics. We think in three dimensions. There's probably more dimensions than that. I'm not going to get into that because I don't understand it. Um, but the point is, is that you're right. There are all of these terms and we do have to really work at it. And something I like telling anyone who will listen is that it's OK not to understand is that that's what scientists do for a living. We don't understand something. And we start the day with one question and we count it as success if we end the day with three questions. So just keep asking questions, even if we, we yeah, we're not even sure of the answer. But Epoch of Reionization, I didn't know what that meant until about the third year of my PhD. So that, that one is, <laughs> that one's very forgivable. But it represents the start of the cosmos as we experience it today, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, absolutely. So what we can say is that after the Big Bang, um, the universe is very hot. It's very violent. Um, you have lots of little packets of light called photons running about, lots of electrons, protons, neutrons, so all the kind of base units. Um, and then the universe starts expanding. It starts cooling down. Everything settles down a little bit. And you have just hydrogen and you have just helium. And for a really long time, about 400 million years, the universe is very dark. It's very boring. Sorry. The hydrogen becomes helium, doesn't it? Eventually, yes. Mm. But at this point, just after the Big Bang, we have something called the Dark Ages. Mm. And that's because there really is nothing going on. If you were sat there, you'd just see nothing. There is no visible light. And but there's lots of hydrogen. Keep going. I'm sorry. I was going to say the Dark mm. Ages run from about 380 thousand to roughly one billion years after the big bang so it's a long time it's a very long time so that's the era of the first stars and then about halfway through that what you get is the first stars forming and you get these forming out of big clouds of hydrogen collapsing under their own gravity and suddenly they ignite a process called fusion and that's what you've just referred to is that when you push two hydrogen elements together uh, two protons, so two pieces of hydrogen together, really, 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 really hard. Then suddenly they turn into helium. And during that process, they release um, energy um, and light and heat. And that is the light and the heat that we experience from our sun. It's lots and lots of hydrogen turning into helium. 
in the center of these stars. But they're called the Dark Ages because we still really don't know what happened during that uh, first one billion years. Absolutely. They're called the Dark Ages for two reasons. It works really well. The Dark Ages, A, we are, it's, it's literally dark. There's no visible light. Um, but B, um, we don't have data from that time. So we can be really proud that we have around 14 billion years of timeline information. So our universe is about 14 billion years old. We know a lot about all of this time, except for the first billion. <laughs> the first billion are really hard to access. Um, and we need some very powerful tools to do that. And my research is about trying to crack open the door on that time and see what see what's there. How do we even know it was one billion years? Uh, well, that is um, because of our observations. So we have observations, believe it or not, at 380,000 years after the Big Bang. So that's the very start. Um, That's something called the cosmic microwave background. And what that is, is the radiation from the Big Bang. So if you imagine you have any explosion in an action film, what you see is you see a big explosion, you see lots of heat, you see lots of light, and then you kind of, you get an afterglow, right? It's really hot. You have to look away from it. Now, that radiation is what's left over from from that explosion. And the Big Bang is the biggest explosion we've ever known. And so there's lots of radiation all around us left over. And there have been telescopes which have been able to observe this. And so we have a record of about 380,000 years after the Big Bang. It's a snapshot. And then on the other side of it, we've been able to take observations further and further and further back so we understand more and more and more and actually it's it's by observing these quasars which is just coming to me <laughs> it's called the quasi-stellar radio sources um so these are uh well i guess black holes that are very very bright uh, <laughs> you can see how complicated this is yes. i'm going from one i'm going from one term and then i'm going to five other terms <laughs> it's just ridiculous so let me slow down a little bit we have observations sandwiching in these dark ages so we have a snapshot at the start we have observations going right back to understanding about 13 billion years ago but there is this gap and that gap is really significant if you consider the scrapbook of a lifetime so let's just look at a scrapbook of a human lifetime then the amount we're missing Let's imagine we've torn out some pages. We've torn out the pages from everything from the first ultrasound to the first day at school. (laughs) That's a huge amount of data to be missing from a human lifetime. It's a very formative time. And that's what we are missing in terms of our universe of timeline. So there's there's a real real interest in, in trying to fill in this time. But we know how a life begins. Do we have any idea what led to the Big Bang? Hmm, No. (laughs) <laughs> it's really good. These are really all we're, we're, we're dealing with so many theories, aren't we? Although r- new yeah, discoveries absolutely. have overturned some long-held theories about the evolution of the universe. Yeah, so so we've been thinking about where we are in the universe, what happened before for thousands and thousands of years, right back to the Greek philosophers, um, and what we think happened is has changed a lot. 
it was only in the early 20th century there were these two competing theories. One was that there was a big bang, so the universe started very, very small and very, very quickly expanded. Um, or there was one called the steady state theorem. And this was the idea that the universe has always been as it is. Um, and in the in that time, like you said, we've had more and more observations to to really pin down the fact that the Big Bang is 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 the most likely option. In fact, it's, it's we haven't got a single piece of evidence against it. Um, but in terms of what came before, we can write down some equations. But it's almost like let's imagine a sombrero, and you've put a baseball on top of this sombrero. That's kind of like where just before the Big Bang is now. What makes it tip? What flicks it? Is it a finger? Is it is it gravity pulling in exactly one direction? We don't know, but something makes it go. And we don't know what it is. But once it goes, it goes very, very quickly. And that's the kind of expansion of the universe, if you will. But we we can't figure out what makes that equation start. My guest on today is Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Emma Chapman. Her book, First Light, Switching on Stars at the Dawn of Time, is published by Bloomsbury Sigma and has some wonderful illustrations in it, which we will get to later. Uh, you point out that incomplete data can lead to incorrect incorrect conclusions. But how much real data can we have about something that occurred an estimated 14 billion years ago? Well, here's the fun part. (laughs) So astronomy, we're time travelers. And that's a open secret. Um, And this all comes from a property of light. Now, light doesn't travel infinitely fast. It travels at a speed limit. There is a speed limit for light. Now, that's very fast. It's 300 million meters per second. So we don't notice it when, for example, if I wave at my friend in my garden right now, um, they will see me waving almost instantly. They'll wave back and I'll be very happy that they're very friendly. If my friend was on Mars, for example, and somehow they could see me, if I waved at them, it would take four minutes Hmm. for that light to travel to Mars. And it would take four minutes for my friend's wave to come back to me. And so it would be eight minutes until I saw my friend wave back. And I think they were very, very rude. So we can, what I'm seeing is my friend waving four minutes ago, if that makes sense. So my friend waves, it takes four minutes for that light to get to me. I see it, but my friend waved four minutes ago. Now, we can extend that back. If we look at our sun, don't do this at home, then it is eight minutes in terms of light travel time. So we we see light from the sun now eight minutes in the past. So we see the sun as it was eight minutes in the past. Now let's go to the nearest galaxy. We see Andromeda as it was 250 million years ago. Hmm. So the further we look back in distance, the further we are looking back in time. And and Andromeda galaxy is our closest neighbor, isn't it? Yes, it is. And that's 250 million light years away, Um, which is a heck of a lot. Mm. And what, what drives this home for me is that 
if if there was an alien on on Andromeda looking at us, they would see us 250 million years in the past. They wouldn't see me waving at them. They'd see the earliest ancestors of the human race. So very hairy, barely able to stand up, um, and certainly not able to conceive of things like the Big Bang. Um, so what we do is we push further and further. We get telescopes which can see further and further. It's like updating your digital camera or your iPhone, actually, being able to look further and further back. Um, and we are now good enough to be able to look back 13 to 14 billion years ago. That's how far in in distance, in light travel time that we can now look with our modern day telescopes. So let's go back to the Big Bang. Um, after nearly 400,000 years, the temperature had dropped enough to allow electrically neutral atoms to form and photons to travel freely. Uh, what was that? that? That was light and gas and nothing else? Uh, well, just after the Big Bang. Yeah. Yeah. So from what we would have understood, let's say, oof, uh, what are we talking about, 80 years ago? Yeah, that's what people would have said. They would have said, there's just light, there's just gas, there's nothing There's nothing more. Now, there is another story here, which I don't know how much you want to go into, but actually there's something else. No, of course I want to know. That's the reason we have you on this show, because you know this stuff. <laughs> but there is so much to talk about, and I can talk for England, so you have to stop me. <laughs> when you're yeah, well, if you something. waved, it would take how, how long before I actually saw it? <laughs> <laughs> um, so there is this mysterious component of other stuff mm -hmm. in the universe and we call this dark matter mm -hmm. and we know that there is something in the universe that we can't see but we know it's there from the effect it has in terms of gravity so we can see its gravitational effects now dark matter it turns out is about only 25%, um, sorry, our, let me get that the other way around, sorry, our matter, so absolutely everything that you see, um, everything that you see, everything you know, hydrogen, helium, us, that's only about 15% of all matter. And dark matter makes up the other 85%. And you say it's everywhere. So it's We're everywhere. sitting in a great big ball of it. We are. We're sitting in a huge ball of dark matter. It's probably flying through your body right now in small amounts, um, very small amounts. And actually, there was a really cool paper. Um, I think it was last year, a research paper. Um, we don't know what dark matter is. So people are, lots of people are saying, well, could it be this particle? Could it be that particle? And there was this paper that said, well, if the particles of dark matter are this big and this heavy, then actually when they went through a human, they'd explode them. And so people would have noticed these randomly exploding humans. And so by this, we can say, well, if we haven't seen randomly exploding humans in this level, then actually the dark matter particles can't be that heavy. <laughs> So this is the kind of thing scientists do in their spare time. But I thought the paper was hilarious. Um, it was a lot of fun. So dark matter, it's 85% of everything in mm. the um, in terms of matter. Now, this is hanging so around. So I'm sitting in dark matter right now. Yeah. I'm just not seeing it. I'm, it's just there. 
Yep, it doesn't interact with light at all, hmm. which means you cannot see it with your eyes. You cannot see it with x-rays or radio or microwave, any of the... So how do we know it exists? Well, we know it by how it affects um, things gravitationally. So when you have um, a very large mass, so something very heavy, let's say our sun, that produces a gravitational attraction. So that means that it pulls other things towards it. Um, so, for example, the Earth is trapped in the gravitational field. The um, rockets are trapped in the Earth's gravitational field unless we can push them up with enough fuel, enough accelerations. They really have to work against gravity. Mm. Now, when we looked at galaxies in the 1960s, we could see lots of galaxies around us that were spirals, just like our galaxy. And they, um, they, they spin. And you can look at stars, which we can see very easily, and you can actually measure how fast these stars are going. And so what people did was they measured how fast these stars were going. And they said, well, if they're going this fast, then there has to be this much. The galaxy has to be this heavy for it to, to not escape. So it's like, it's like kind of saying this rocket is not able to, to leave the Earth with, with this much fuel, and so the Earth must be this heavy to be keeping trapping it. And what they found was that the galaxy was way heavier than they expected, because they can also count the stars. They can count the stars, and they can say, well, the stars weigh this much. But hang on, in order for the stars to actually not fly off when the, when the galaxy's spinning, they're saying the galaxy has to be this large, and that's actually much, much heavier than they expected. So they said, well, clearly there's a lot of matter, a lot of stuff in this galaxy that we can't see. And therefore they called it dark. And so this is dark matter. So we, we know it's there because otherwise spiral galaxies would be, would be unable to exist, including our own. And we clearly exist. So clearly there is something here. But in terms of our understanding beyond that, believe it or not, in what the, what's that? I can't even do the math on that. In the 60 odd years since we figured out it was there, we've not really made much movement on what it is. Do we have a sense that the other stars are similar to our sun? And the other um, galaxies are similar to our galaxy? Yeah, so we've seen enough galaxies to to be able to catalogue them, and we call this the Galaxy Zoo. Um, and what people did was they said, well, there's this kind of spiral, there are kind of squidgy blue blobs, squidgy red blobs, um, elliptical galaxies, there's lots of, lots of these spirals, there's blue spirals, there's spirals with bars in the middle of them, almost like a Catherine wheel that you, you use on fireworks night, or whatever you have. Um, so we can gather all of these different kinds and put them in categories. And so, yeah, our Milky Way is not unusual. And when we look at the stars in it, um, we can understand from the kind of light that we're observing what's in that star. And there's nothing unusual about the stars we see in our galaxy. But as a kind of addendum to that, my research works on a very different kind of star. So, so the first stars, the very, very first stars, are completely different. They are completely unique to any of the stars that we have seen around us. And in fact, we've never, ever seen one. 
But so, in terms of the stuff we see now, yeah, there's nothing unusual about our galaxy. We're, we're nothing special. So going back to after the Big Bang, after nearly 400,000 years, temperature had dropped enough to allow electrically neutral atoms to form and photons to travel freely. Uh, but the, the, I guess that was light and gas and nothing else. When did they start becoming this? Uh, when did the soup of subatomic particles and energy uh, become stars? That happened, we think, about 200 million years after the Big Bang. Um, we're That's not a long time. Sure. So this is, was a, a slow process. And you say yes. there was, and for much of that time, we have no idea what happened. Yeah, we have we we can we can use our kind of scientific common sense. So we have lots of dark matter, we have lots of stuff, and all of that is kind of coming together in clumps because it's all attracting each other gravitationally. So you get bigger and bigger and bigger clumps. And so when you get big clumps of dark matter, um, you also get all the hydrogen um, following those clumps. So these big dark matter clumps, they they attract all of this this hydrogen, and so the you get big hydrogen clumps and you gather this and you gather this over 100 million years. And it's only after about, let's say, we really don't know, 150 million years, 200 million years, that finally these, these big clumps of hydrogen get so, so large that they begin collapsing. And that huge pressure of collapse starts to push these hydrogen things together, hydrogen and um, helium. I can't think of the things, atoms yeah. together, um, into helium hmm. and kind of stopping that process, producing lots of heat and light. And a star is born. We have one possible potential uh, observation of this time. And that was made by a group from the University of Arizona in 2018. And that, we think, pinpointed the birth of these first stars at about 180 million years after the Big Bang, but it has not been verified, even though it's as exciting as it was. So they, they become clouds, and then eventually clouds drift together, and uh, gravity is formed, and that begins to pull? Yeah, so gravity's there all the time. Gravity, I've got a gravitational attraction on you right now. It's just that you're very far away and I'm not very massive. And so you don't feel it. Now, in the early universe, you you have these clouds of gas. Gravity has been there since the Big Bang. It's always in existence. Mm -hmm. But over 100 million years, you might get two atoms starting to move together and then you'll get three and you'll get four and then you'll get whole clouds, like you say. Um, and so these clouds will come together until you get something so massive, it just cannot hold up its own weight anymore. And then that's when you, you get these first stars. But if these clouds are too small, they won't collapse. Well, the first stars you write were hundreds of times the size of our sun and a million times brighter. And you say that they lived fast and died young in powerful explosions that seeded the universe with the heavy elements that we're made of. Uh, so what, what can all of that teach us about the universe today? Yeah, let's unpick that a bit. Um, well, in the very early universe, it was very hot and very violent, as I said. So you cannot form anything very complex. So we have a whole periodic table of elements. We have a ton of different kinds of elements. We have hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, the carbon we're made of, the oxygen we breathe, the silver and gold uh, jewellery that we're wearing. But in the very early... Metals universe, are forming? 
Yeah. So there was only hydrogen and helium. But in these first stars, they, they fused together hydrogen into helium. And then they fused helium into lithium. And so you start building up all these complex elements. And it's only when these first stars explode in only about a million years that then all of these heavy elements are flung out into their local areas. And over another few millions of years, then the now polluted gas clouds, the gas clouds with a ton of all of these heavier elements in, they start to collapse and they start to form the stars that actually we still see around us today. Um, these are what we call population two stars. And then you have the next generation after that, which are population one stars. So you get you get stars which have got more and more heavy elements in it and our star is one of the kind of the youngest generation it's it's quite it's quite polluted it's got lots of heavy elements in it and so by looking at these first stars we can understand how our universe began how the building blocks of everything that we are everything that we see how they were built up over time how we began really well, as you said, you, you've divided the stars into three populations, and we're going to take a little break and come back and go into more detail on that and some of the other things that you write about in this book. We also, I also want to talk about the, uh, the new telescopes and what we have now that is helping us to understand uh, things that we couldn't understand in the past. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Our whole universe was in a hot, dense state that nearly 14 million years ago expansion started. Wait, the earth began to cool, the autotrophs began to drool, Neanderthals developed tools, we built a wall. We built the pyramids, math, science, history, unraveling the mystery, and it all started with a big bang. I hope that you're enjoying my conversation with Emma Chapman. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, First Light, Switching on Stars at the Dawn of Time. To do that, just go online to give2wbai.org. That's give and then the number 2wbai.org. Or call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950 during today's show. We'll be happy to send you a copy of her book. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And we thank you very much. And we return to Emma Chapman, who lives in Britain and doesn't have to deal with fundraising because the BBC uh, char uh, has a fee for everybody who lives in the country, whether they watch BBC TV, listen to BBC radio or not. Um, <laughs> Uh, yep. <laughs> People are divided on whether that's a good thing. I absolutely love it because it enables independent programming. But, yeah, it's, it's a very different way. Well, we also this also enables us to do independent programming and do the kind of show that we're doing right now, talking about Emma Chapman's book, First Light, Switching on Stars at the Dawn of Times, from Bloomsbury Sigma. She is an astrophysicist at Royal Society Research Fellow and a fellow at the Royal Astronomical Society based at Imperial College London. So let's talk about those three um, star populations. Uh, you, you kind of mentioned the second and third, but let's break them down. What's the first, what's the second, and what's the third? Okay, so we're going to start with population three. Oh, okay. And that might seem backwards. a bit strange. 
But the population three stars are the earliest stars to exist in our universe. So these are the stars that are very pristine, as I call them. They're very clean because they don't have any of these nasty, heavy elements in it. It's just hydrogen and helium. They were a super of a, subatomic particles and energy and little else. Yeah, they they are just normal stars like the sun, except they are they don't have any of these. They haven't been through this fusion process before. They're made from a cloud of gas fresh from the Big Bang. Nothing else in it, and because of that, they're very massive. So they're about 100 times the mass of our sun. Um, they're very hot. They're about a million degrees Celsius instead of uh, about 6,000 degrees Celsius or Fahrenheit. It doesn't really matter <laughs> these sizes um, that the sun is. So they're very different, but they a, are still A million stars. times brighter. A million times brighter and a million times um, hotter. Do any okay. of those early stars still exist? Do we have any sense that they still exist? There is a chance. So that's a, a question that's a longer one because it's it's really fascinating. So please don't forget it. But shall I shall I do the three populations first? Go ahead. Yeah, because um, I really want to talk about that question because it's really exciting. Um, okay, so population three are these very first stars. They go through this fusion process. They die in only a million years. That's that's comparable to our sun, which is nine billion years. It really is. It's a, it's a three-day lifetime compared to a human lifetime. Very, very, very quick. But they see um, the universe with all of the, the yeah. elements that we're made of. Yeah, so they explode. They get lots of heavier elements that we're made of. And then those dirty gas clouds collapse again. And then so you get a second generation of stars. And these stars aren't so clean. They have already got a head start in this kind of fusion process, these engines churning out heavier elements. Um, and so these are called population two. And then you get even more heavier elements made. And they, these population two stars, some of those have exploded, not all of them, but some of those have exploded, making even dirtier clouds around them. And when they collapse, we get population one stars, of which our sun is one. So our sun is a population one star. The reason the numbering seems a little bit backwards is because we have understood things as they are very close to us first. So we looked at our sun and we said, OK, our sun, that's a very normal star. Excellent. Population one. That's just just a normal star. Nothing, nothing to do with that. Then we looked at other stars in about the 1950s um, and we realised that by looking at their light, we could tell that actually they had less heavy elements in. We thought, oh, well, there's another population. That's a bit strange. It's not like our sun. We'll call it population two. And then it doesn't take much to think, well, if we've already got we've got older stars which have got less elements in, let's keep going backwards Actually, there must be this population three with no elements, no heavy elements in them at all. And that's because we know you can't have had these 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 carbon and oxygen and silver at the Big Bang. And the reason for that is that these are very complex. There's lots of atoms involved. And if we think of Lego, let's think of building a big tower of Lego. Now, in the Big Bang, 
There's a lot of stuff whizzing around. So it is like trying to build a big tower of Lego in kindergarten or nursery with lots of sugar crazed toddlers running around. You can build something big, but it will not be long <laughs> until something smashes it apart. And that's in the bit that's like just after the Big Bang. So we know that you can't build these very complex elements up. So there must be this very pristine, clean population of stars that we call population three. But we've never observed one. And there are two ways we can observe them. And one of them is the way you referred to, which is, do they still exist? Would they exist in the outskirts of the Milky Way? They could exist anywhere. Hmm. They could exist um, close to us. They could exist in the outskirts of the Milky Way. They could exist in the center of the Milky Way. They could exist in other galaxies. Mm-hmm. But actually, you've, you've hit on it right there because it's the outskirts of the galaxy, which is where we are looking for ones that still survive today. We can look back in time and try and see them as they were. That's kind of my day job. But there's this group of scientists called Stellar Archaeologists, best name in the world. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they try and sift through the 200 billion odd stars in our Milky Way. And they try and uncover the few, population three, the few first stars that might still be surviving. And they look in the outskirts of the Milky Way, mainly because there's less stars there. If you imagine your big spiral disk, if you kind of look upwards from the disk, then there are less stars. And so it's easier to kind of sift through. It's it's just easier to sift through. Um, But also older stars, they they tend to move, they tend to saunter out of the disk into the outskirts of the galaxy. So it's kind of our best bet to look there. And we kind of know what we're looking for a little bit because I referred to earlier the fact that the first stars, they die very quickly. And this is because there's a very well-known relation, which is that the bigger the star, the heavier it is, and the quicker it guzzles through all of its fuel, all of that hydrogen that it's burning through. Um, And so the shorter its lifetime, the quicker it explodes. So in order for a star to have lasted, to have lived the 13.8 billion years that, that we're at right now, it can only have been about about the size of our sun, a little bit less. So the small than the size sun-like sun. stars are the ones that have the longest lives. Yeah. So even though they've got less fuel in terms of in terms of if you weigh it, they're so slow at fusing through it that they live a lot longer. So how do we detect all of these things? Uh, I know there. I know we built huge observatories. We have high-tech spectrographs, and and isn't uh, there uh, soon to be launched ten billion dollar James Webb Space Telescope that we hope will help us clear up some of these questions? Yes, the James Webb Space Telescope is an interesting one. It's it's going to. I mean, it's switching on any moment now in terms of the real science data. So please watch out for that. It was launched in Christmas Day um, last year. I stopped my kids. It was it was it was launched at about I think it was exactly midday in the UK. 
Um, so my kids had to stop opening their presents. <laughs> JWST was launched and their mother wept, wept on the sofa. It's a very exciting telescope, something we've waited for a very long time. Um, and what that's going to be able to do is look very, very far back in time to about 600 million years after the Big Bang, around there. So it's going to be able to push back very, very far. But in terms of observing the first stars, it's not going to quite get there. What it might be able to observe is the deaths of the first stars because they died in such bright explosions called supernovae um, that those might be bright enough for James Webb um, to to pick up. But it's it's really uncertain about that. So James Webb's going to be wait, able to it, do it some... would be picking up something that's long dead because it takes so long for that light to travel. Absolutely. We'd be looking at light that was about 13 and a half billion years old. That's what wow. we'd be detecting. And so we'd see their deaths. So that's how we look back in time. We get really cool telescopes that can look very, very far away like James Webb. And to, so we can really pick up that very, very old light. Um, the ones that I work with are called radio telescopes. They're based mostly on Earth. And we, instead of using the kind of light that we can, we see with our eyes, we use radio light. So um, exactly the kind of radio waves that are used to transmit information um, over long distances on Earth. And indeed, why we call it the radio <laughs> when you're listening to it, because, because the information um, has been transmitted using radio waves. Now, the first stars, they didn't just emit visible light. And our sun doesn't just emit visible light, which we will know if we walk out on a sunny day because our skin will burn due to the UV light. So there's lots of different kinds of light. And when the first stars um, emitted different kinds of light, um, it was a different brightnesses. And from this era of the first stars, what we can detect is lots and lots of radio light from that time. It's a lot brighter than the optical light. And we detect that um, using radio telescopes, like the ones that I use uh, in the Netherlands and in Australia. So yeah. these are the two main telescopes that are looking back in time. The, the telescopes you're mentioning are the, uh, the Square Kilometre Array, SCA, in Australia, and the Low Frequency Array, LOFAR, in the Netherlands, both of which you're involved with. Um, the one in Australia uh, is a telescope that will eventually consist of a million antennas pointing sky, a million antennas pointing skywards in, in the desert? Fingers crossed it's going to be a million. So uh, we call it the SKA. And the SKA um, has been funded at the minute in its first stage to have 130,000 antennas, which I hope you still find impressive. Um, and uh, that has been greenlit for construction for just under a year now. So in the Western Australian desert, we're going to put down 130,000 radio antennas. Now, these look fairly similar to the kind of radio antennas that you might have had on your house, if you remember that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, that's how we used to get the TV. Um, these Let's imagine kind of a whole bunch of wires that look a little bit like a Christmas tree. So lots of, you know, lots of sticks pointing out in every direction. 
in a kind of like big triangle, 3D triangle. They're about two meters in height, so, you know, humanish size. Um, and we are planting those all over. And all of those are listening. They're all listening to the radio waves that are coming from 13 billion years ago. And because there's so many of them, we can add all of that data together. We can add all of these. It's like listening with 130,000 ears, basically. It's a lot better than one. You can combine all the data and figure it out. Um, and that's what we do. So you, you need huge telescopes in order to look very far back in time, very far back in distance. And that's why I've got an amateur telescope downstairs. Mm -hmm. um, it can look a certain amount away. I can see some great stars up there. I can see some planets, like Jupiter, Saturn, but it's not comparable to the Hubble mm -hmm. <laughs> or the James Webb, which have much larger lenses. Now, to look back 13 billion years, you need a really big telescope. And the great thing about radio telescopes is that they aren't just one big lens or one big dish all of the time. Instead, you can fake a telescope. And you do that by having two antennas, let's say 10 meters apart. And that's actually roughly the same as a whole telescope that's about 10 meters in diameter, so like a big 10 meter dish that costs loads of money, can barely support itself. You can cheat. You can kind of cheat. And it takes a lot of computational methods, a lot of clever maths. But the thing is, you can. You can cheat. And so using these 130,000 antennas, we make a we make a, a, a giant equivalent telescope. Um, I'm, I'm blanking on how big it is, but it's something like the big the size of Florida. Something like that. But I can go even more impressive than that, which is that um, my current one, LOFAR, it's based in the Netherlands. But because we have a few antennas in the UK, a few in Spain, what we've actually got is a telescope the size of Western Europe. Really? Oh. That can look 13 billion years ago. My guest on today's Leonard Lopated Lodge is Emma Chapman. Her book, First Light, Switching on Stars at the Dawn of Time, is published by Bloomsbury Sigma. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Astronomers announced last month that they pierced the veil of darkness and dust at the center of our Milky Way galaxy to capture the first picture of a huge black hole. Had we known of its existence before we were able to get that picture of it? Yeah, we did know it was there. And this is a very similar principle that I described to, um, to how they, they knew that dark matter was there. Um, you kind of know what's how how massive, how big something is um, by how things are moving around it, because it's that's how it depends on the, the gravity. You know how massive it is. You know how quickly the things are kind of moving around it. When we looked at the center of our galaxy, what we can see are stars moving all around in, in kind of circular elliptical orbits, just like the planets move around our sun. So we know there's something there. We know there's something in the middle, even though it's very dark, very dusty. And actually the speeds of these stars, they're moving so fast that the thing in the middle must be really, really massive to, to kind of to keep them to keep them from escaping. So we knew there was something in there um, and we can't see it. 
So our best guess, and after a lot of a lot of work, we 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 knew that it it, it must be a black hole because there's nothing else in the in the universe that can be that big. Were the planets in our solar system created at the same time? Um, the reason I ask is I, I wonder why they're so different. Uh, I would have thought that they would all be fairly similar. All of the stars? No, our planets in our solar system. Oh, I see. Um, so, no, the Milky Way was formed um, a, a long time ago. So our, our rough guess is it's actually it's, it's almost as old as, as, as the universe. So, you know, 13 billion years or something like that. It's one of... It's a very early one. It's very, very large, which means it's formed from smaller galaxies over time. So you get gal big galaxies forming from the kind of the collisions of smaller galaxies. They eat each other. Um, the Milky Way would have had a couple of those. Um, but in terms of our solar system, that would have formed, I think, around four and a half billion years ago. So and all the planets, all the planets in it at the same time. No. So, no, they wouldn't have. So you have this big kind of disk of stuff surrounding the sun and you do have the planets forming at slightly different times. But, yeah, roughly, I'm, I'm being a bit pernickety here, roughly, yeah, four and a half billion years ago, you have the solar system forming. And yet, uh, since they're all made out of the same elements, they are different. Uh, Mars and, and Earth are not the same. No, they're not. Um, and that is dependent on the kind of how the sun was able to, to attract all of the different elements. So you've got the heavier elements kind of closer to the sun. Um, I'm getting really out of my comfort zone here, actually, which is really funny. I'm, I'm starting to like I'm starting to sweat here. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't remember my undergraduate planet formation. <laughs> um, but. Yeah, it basically it depends on how the different elements are distributed in the disk around the sun. So where Jupiter is, there's just lots of lighter elements like the hydrogen and the helium. And so you get what is a very, very light star. So, for example, Saturn, very, very low density. It could float in your bath. It's that low density. Um, but whereas in the inner planets, you do have a lot more heavier elements. You've got all of the stuff that you find in the Earth, like carbon and titanium and all of these different things. And so even though they, they formed at roughly the same time, um, they are made of very, very different things. And it, interestingly, Jupiter, it is mo made mostly of gas. And really the only thing that makes it different from a star is the fact that it isn't massive enough to have ignited that fusion process. Now, we have just about a minute left, but I was curious about one of the uh, photographs. You have a bunch of illustrations, photographs in this book. Uh, what's the significance of the stromatolites that can be found in Western Australia? Why did you include that? that these stromatolites are kind of... Um, Indicative of a very big change that happens in uh, the history of our Earth, which is and they're all disappearing from... now. Well, yeah. Well, I have to leave you, unfortunately, uh, but it's been wonderful talking with you, Emma Chapman. Her book, First Light: Switching on Stars at the Dawn of Time, from Bloomsbury Sigma. She is an astrophysicist 
at the Royal Society Research Fellow, a fellow at the Royal Astronomical Society that's based in Imperial College London, an award-winning writer. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you very much for having me. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews about important subjects you don't usually get anywhere else, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And an especially urgent problem right now is our need uh, for help in paying our tower fund. We are currently two months behind in the rent for a broadcast tower, which is now uh, at $34,000. Without it, we are not on the air. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and then the number 2 WBAI.org. And then, as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, First Light, Switching on Stars at the Dawn of Time by Emma Chapman. So why not make that call now at 212-209-2950? Go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. We'll say thank you if you do that to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more with some perks, including a WBAI tote bag. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because WBAI doesn't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. And if you tune in regularly to uh, this station to Leonard Lopez at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do by giving us a call at 212-209-2950 or by going online to WBAI.org. Uh, give to WBAI.org. We are uh, preempted tomorrow for coverage of the House Select Committee hearings about January 6th. But we hope to see you on Friday when we're going to do an open phone show.